Today is May 29th, 2014, and this is episode 69 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, good evening, and uh, you can blame me for the couple-day late show. Sorry, guys. Yeah, well, take it out of your pay. That's true. That's true. Well, you know, Memorial Day, and then, you know, having a social life, and then... You know, things happened. So, sorry we're late, but we're here now. Yep, better late than ever. So, as usual, the thoughts and opinions we express, express, express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers, past, present, or future. So, I, I did have something to start off the show from Bob with, and, um, Bob gave me a call and he was pretty frustrated. And so he, he calls me up and he says, Jerry, and he says, Jerry, because apparently I wasn't paying attention. Uh, he, he says, what's the first rule or what's the first control in the SANS top 20? And I said, well, of course it's inventory, you know, inventory management. He says, well, what do you think would happen if a administrator put a server on a network and establish a VPN out to someplace on the wide open internet that they control. And then that person left and it's not inventoried and the company doesn't have a process to reconcile what's connected to their networks. Oh my. So, um, yeah, apparently what can happen in those cases is that servers, according to Bob, is that those servers uh, can live for years and years and years and years on a network um, allowing um, not only the former employee, but possibly lots of other people access into the company uh, network. So yeah, it's a, not, not a great thing. Ouch. So wouldn't asset and vulnerability scanning servers pick this up? Or perhaps even looking at the cam tables off your switches and reconciling that against known devices. I mean, there are ways you should be able to catch this. I I think that is exactly the lesson that Bob was trying to beat into my head was there's a whole bunch of ways you can do this. There's passive ways you can do this. There's active ways you can do this. Uh, you know, you should have, you should have some kind of an inventory database and you should be able to, to reconcile based on that. And you can reconcile using vulnerability scanners, as you said. You can reconcile using, as you mentioned, the cam tables off of your switches. You can reconcile, uh, you know, using, I mean, sims, looking at you know, firewall logs. I mean, there's there's sure. a million and one ways you can do this. Uh, but the point is, you, you probably should do it because if you have something that's sitting out there, uh, you, you know, you're, you're not necessarily applying all of your good control otherwise good controls uh, to yeah. those to those systems and and I think that's going to become even harder because or as time goes on because 
you know, until recently, you could reach out and touch the systems. And, you know, you, if you were, you know, a data center jockey, you could go into a data center and you could see that something is there that shouldn't be there. But that's not really very feasible anymore. You know, not to mention the concept of controlling outbound traffic on your firewalls. Uh, Absolutely. You know, so people can't be standing up VPNs on the way out without some sort of oversight. I know it's a pain in the ass to have really locked down fire rules, but this is exactly one of the use cases of why you should have a really tightly controlled outbound firewall policy. But I will tell you, it's difficult. It yeah. takes a lot of overhead. It takes a lot of clueful people, and it slows down business. But that is one of the trade-offs with security. Right. And right. you know that's something only your business can decide. One of the, one um, of the one of the effective things I saw and I've I've used um, in in a couple of different locations is what what you said, and I don't know if this is what you meant or not, but implementing basically default deny for all IP addresses except for those that you've explicitly have a reason, right? So mm-hmm. you know, let's say you have a you know a, a network that has a slash twenty four, right, and you're only using ten IP addresses. All the rest of them, all the rest of those IP addresses have inbound and outbound blocked. And when you add that 11th server, you have to explicitly go in and create rules for it. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. Uh, the, I think the problem is when you start treating those networks as kind of one holistic thing, then you have the opportunity for someone to come in and slap something in and it get, doesn't, doesn't get picked up. The downside yep. to that is exactly what you said. It's more difficult. Well, yeah, and this is this is exactly why, and I don't think we're talking about it on the show today, but I was reading an article earlier today, why non-IT users uh, or consumers of IT are just going around IT and just going to the cloud uh, because of security controls in part and bureaucracy and other other issues. So it's uh, it's a problem, and it's something that really needs to be addressed at an executive level in terms of what stance the company's going to take about these things and, and how they're going to address it. Yeah, I think the uh, the affectionate term for that is shadow IT. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got a quick story, too. I, I, don't, I don't know if you dropped up your, your Bob yep, story. Yep, go ahead. But, uh, I've got to be a little sort of vague about this because uh, I certainly don't want to uh, divulge any uh, private data, but I was in a meeting in the last week or two with a company that is in the process of deploying uh, a set of monitoring monitoring technology. And what was fascinating to me is the IT group had made the purchase decision and it's in process of of purchasing. And then this particular meeting was bringing in the compliance guys. And what was amazing to me about this was how many compromises the company was willing to make in the deployment or the configuration of this monitoring technology to satisfy PCI requirements. So they were willing to degrade the monitoring capability of this technology they were deploying to satisfy or to, uh, I should say at least, make it a little easier to pass a PCI audit. And I thought, this is crazy. This is wrong. This is, we should not be driving you know, degrading our, our our security technology because of the need to pass an audit. And and something else that came up in this conversation was, you know, they were, and this is again, you know, the, the sort of um, 
balance companies need to figure out is they were talking about what was the most stable code release, not necessarily the most secure code release in terms of what had been baked the longest and, and you know what had had the most regression testing, not what had had the most up-to-date patches. Right. And both of these in the same meeting just struck me about I understand that, that there's competing goals here. But I was watching this meeting, and again, this is me getting very close to saying things I shouldn't divulge. In this particular meeting, you had peer-level folks of these different groups who had their own agendas and their own goals, and you didn't have anyone high enough off the food chain to be able to weigh those goals and needs against each other and find the right balance for the company. Right. Uh, and it was it was very telling to me of how much we're willing to compromise for compliance, and, and I thought that that was something worth mentioning. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I I think that as with many things, this kind of goes back to somewhat to that discussion we had a couple episodes ago about compliance versus versus security. And I you know I think compliance is an incentive program that that creates some interesting, uh, I I said that wrong, compliance is a program that creates some interesting incentives for people to not necessarily be secure. And, and that's the, I think probably what you've seen, you know, where, where other attributes or other aspects are more important than, uh, you know, than, than being secure, you know, they're, they're doing it for a specific purpose and security is kind of orthogonal to that. Which is unfortunate, indeed. But it's the real world, and it's something that you know we should be cognizant of. Right, right. And you know we should, as as uh, as as we progress in our careers and have more more and more ability to influence these things, we ought to be looking out for those kinds of bad <laughs> bad incentive programs, right? You know, we, right. we need to be cognizant that when you have an incentive conflict like that, you can end up with, with bad, you know, not, not ideal outcomes. So anyhow, good, good story. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it helps some people. So the first, first story or first news story we have tonight is, um, is actually something I've, I've really wanted to talk about is like big, huge news and and uh it of course is about Flappy Bird coming back which i got to tell you um it's huge yes yeah. <laughs> no i i sorry it was a little twitter joke at with someone um yeah. no obviously we're talking about truecrypt uh the the, the truecrypt bomb exploded last night and as of you know just before we started recording this uh, it's still a little ambiguous as to what the hell is actually going on. What we do know is that someone updated the TrueCrypt website to essentially say that TrueCrypt has possibly some vulnerabilities, which kind of aligns, by the way, with some of the initial reports out of the audit, the code audit that was going on. Uh, which basically said that there weren't any backdoors found, but there were a few uh, un, undescribed vulnerabilities found. But that didn't seem to really play into 
uh, from what I could tell, to, into this situation. And of course, the TrueCrypt page goes on to give instructions on how to migrate over to Microsoft BitLocker, which is, for most people who use TrueCrypt, probably about the most ridiculous thing you could possibly imagine. And and so that has prompted all kinds of rumors and conspiracy theories and on and on and on. Is this the result of a defacement? And I'll tell you, if it is a defacement, it's probably the most elaborate defacement that has ever been put on because, I mean, they created pages upon pages of very intricate documentation on how to install BitLocker and other things, and they recompiled a new version of the program with the encryption functionality disabled in a splash page that's saying that TrueCrypt is no longer uh, trustworthy and, and on and on. So not not a great, not looking good for it being a, a, a defacement. The, the one theory, I think, to be honest, as crazy as it sounds, that holds the most water in my mind, at least, and, you know, I hope I'm wrong, is the theory that this is a lava bit-like flame-out where they're just, they've taken a pretty ridiculous uh, exit uh, with the, the hope that people will kind of read between the lines. So, uh, you know, I don't, obviously I don't have any more insight than anybody else does, but it'd be nice so, to know what the heck happened. So to summarize the lava bit reference, you, you're theorizing that they had some sort of government mandate that was also associated with a gag order. Correct. And it left them with the only option of just shutting down. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, is itself a ridiculous thought because one of the problems with TrueCrypt is that the developers of TrueCrypt are anonymous. We don't actually know who they are. And we don't mean the hacker group anonymous. Yeah, we, we mean... As far as we know. Little a anonymous, not big a anonymous. <laughs> well, you know, I don't want to... First of all, if you're in an enterprise and you're using TrueCrypt, you should think twice. There's a lot of interesting things. And Jerry, you actually were expounding upon this better than I can um, as to why you want to be careful about using TrueCrypt in a corporate environment. But you know, one thing I will sort of point out here is one thing that you do have to take into consideration when you're utilizing security technology is – uh, the future chances of something happening with that security technology and leaving your business high and dry. So here's an example of an open source technology uh, that, in essence, went away overnight. Uh, you know, yeah, you, it's not like if you deployed TrueCrypt that it suddenly stopped working, but it's no longer being maintained, it's no longer being updated. Um, and that's one thing to, to keep in mind when you're choosing security technologies is what is the chance of that company or concern or whatever it may be uh, being around two to three years from now. Yeah, and in, in particular, as you mentioned, TrueCrypt is, a, is an even more odd duck because of the license. So from a, from a licensing standpoint, any company who is diligent about looking at, at the T's and C's of software that they're using would not have let you use TrueCrypt it was it was just a very odd license and whereas most other open source programs or applications i should say would allow someone to fork it in in the case of a flame out like this 
the actual license of TrueCrypt prevents you from, you know, essentially from taking over the source code base and and making your own new product. So it 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 this particular case is going to be wildly interesting to watch unfold, assuming that they don't come back and say, ha ha, that was a big joke, um, which I don't think they're going to do. And even if they did, I'm not sure anybody would actually start using them again. Um, but given the, given the, the onerous license terms and the fact that the authors are anonymous and apparently are walking away from it, who is, who's left to actually uh, file a claim if someone were to fork it and and uh, put it under a, a new license. That's a, that's an interesting uh, possibility, and uh, I'm not sure if we'll see it, but we'll we'll find out. Yeah, it bears watching. Um, I'm not sure exactly how much impact this has on the enterprise world, but it's certainly interesting in the security world. Yeah, I know. I know, I know a lot of uh, security people independently use this on their own systems. And I know a lot of smaller companies who are more tolerant and uh, maybe more fly by the seat of your pants use TrueCrypt in their businesses because, you know, it's, it was a pretty good, pretty good thing. And, uh, and now it's apparently gone. So um, Indeed. long, long live TrueCrypt. And, and <laughs> no, I, I really hope we don't see Libra Crypt. Jesus. <laughs> All right, moving on. Our next story comes from the IT Governance blog. The title is Weak Passwords Responsible for 31% of Cyber Attacks. I, you know, we need to get like some ominous music for uh, when we say cyber attack. It's true. I was also thinking dun, dun, Bob, dun. Needs, Bob needs his own bumper music. That's a good good idea. Be yeah, a, like I circus think. music or... Well, you know, you know how like news stories that are reported often have their own sort of, you know, depending on the news story, either somber or true. You know, little, well, good point. And like, dun, 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 dun. you know, I think that's, we need to like that for Bob. Uh, that's a good idea. It's good. Uh, we, you know, hopefully someday Bob will actually come on the show. I, 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 I would like that. I would. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's legal. I mean, he's even allowed. Well, he's well, we certainly not allowed in this country. Right. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, well, let's not, let's not tease something we can't deliver. That's true. That's true. So this, uh, this story is about a report that Trustwave just released. It's their 2014 global security report. And, you know, that there's actually two back to back stories I wanted to talk about uh, regarding this report. This one points out that, as I mentioned, 31% of attacks uh were started and the initial stages of them were were the result of weak weak passwords which is i mean at the same time it's it's not surprising and it's really disturbing because it's you know it's one of those things that are, are pretty easy to avoid either you know password managers two factor authentication on and on and on uh, but it, this it just seems like Groundhog Day with with weak passwords and yeah. And I'll be honest, I, weak password is an interesting phrase. You know, I didn't dig too deep into the report to see what they felt was a weak password. Uh, it could mean a lot of things 
to a lot of different people. Uh, but there's plenty of code base out there to, as people are creating passwords, check it for strength yep. and warn against weak passwords. There's plenty of ways to fix this problem. That's right. It's just uh, it's just complicated, I guess. I really hope someday we stop reporting about password weak password problems. Uh, if you actually dig into the report, there were a couple of other interesting things I saw. Uh, one of them was that 71% of uh, the, the organizations involved in their report did not detect the breach themselves. So 71% were alerted by some third party, which kind of goes in line with what we've been saying for a long time, that we really need to amp up our ability to detect this stuff ourselves. Along with that, 87 it takes 87 days, uh, the median uh, of 87 days from the intrusion to the time of detection, which actually, that's a little shorter than some of the other reports have have found. Uh, you know, that's, uh, I don't know what to say. It, 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 is a, it is kind of a sad state and points out that we have a, we as an in industry have a lot of, a lot of maturing to do. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the next, the next report again was also from this, uh, the same report. This one is from Tech Central and it, it highlights uh, something that I didn't actually catch on the first read, that 78% of exploits, they found ma malware-based exploits, used Java. Which, you know... <laughs> uh, Yay, Java! Yes. Uh, and there were two other really interesting stats. I thought 59% of malicious emails used attachments as their as their preferred delivery mechanism and as opposed to a link to click on. Yeah. And the other 41% okay. use links. Okay. Exactly right. Yep. Uh, and you know, I, I actually expected that to be the other way around because it, you know, everything we've been hearing about is that things are moving more and more towards, you know, web-based exploitation. Mm -hmm. uh, but this doesn't seem to be uh, moving that well, in that direction. There's also less defense around bad links, right? You know, there. Right. If you look at an attachment coming in via email, it's probably going to get scanned by some sort of anti-malware tool uh, at the email level, probably at the network level, uh, and at the endpoint level. Whereas when you're looking at just clicking on a link, you may be going through a proxy, you may not, or it may or may not be scanned, and then at the endpoint. So, um, yep. Now, certainly there are other vendors out there that. Uh, do some neat things with sandboxing links and, and going out there and checking to see if that site is malicious before it allows the link uh, to get through an email. And there's other ways to, to go after that, but um, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it, we've talked about some, some ways in the past to, you know, the, the certainly not foolproof, but most companies have web filtering technology in place. And one of the, one of the common ways to try to block this kind of this kind of attack because again, a lot of times these are iframe, you know, iframe inclusions. And I'm not necessarily saying the, uh, the, the malicious link because a lot of times that'll take you actually right to the, the exploit page. Right. Uh, but, but often those will themselves have a bad reputation unless you're among the first people to actually get the, the link. Uh, what, what you can do is, is block 
uncategorized websites on your web filter. And, and a lot of times you'll actually catch some of these sites. Now, the problem is that you will also unfortunately catch legitimate things too. And, and that will make for unhappy users, which again, we have found that sometimes convenience uh, outstrips security. So, uh, you know, to each his own, but that is, uh, that's something that I, I definitely recommend if you can do, I, I think it, it takes a lot of these, uh, and these kinds of attacks and, and addresses them. Now I, I, you know, we were both at a talk last year where the, the guy was describing what, what, uh, what he does with his phishing program, right? He runs that, I don't know if it was fish me or one of those phishing companies. And what they'll do is they will register a website or a domain name that they're going to launch, they're going to use for their phishing campaigns, and they'll uh, they'll they'll have it redirect to some legitimate site, you know, a business site or whatever. And so what happens is that that what, that domain name will often get the categorization in the different web filtering, you know, services, WebSense and BlueCoat and whatnot, as the page they're redirecting to, and then they'll launch their attack, and it'll pass right through your your uh, your web filter but fortunately not a lot of people are all that sophisticated so anyhow that uh that's what i have to say about that indeed so the uh, the next story we have comes from e security planet which is quite a name for a website uh this story is titled lowe's acknowledges third party data breach and what happened here is a company called Safety First manages their, uh, I guess, inventory of driver information of Lowe's trucks. And there isn't any detail about what actually happened other than to say that it was breached and they lost names, addresses, birth dates, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, and sales IDs and other driving record information, which is probably among the worst breaches I can think of. Yeah, that's pretty much anything anyone would ever need. Yeah, I'm not sure what else you could possibly get. Checking have, account numbers or... Have we uh, reached out for comment if Safety First is going to be changing the name to, like, Safety Third? Well, well I mean, may, you know, maybe... Maybe that's why you know they're so focused on safety. They didn't focus on security. Ah, uh, fair enough. So not the safety of the information. Not the safety. Yeah, right. Right. The safety right. of their employees. They probably walk around with helmets and uh, elbow pads and knee pads. Perhaps in complete bubble wrap. True. Which may make it tough to to be a system. How, how can you program if you have like those big gloves on? Right. That's true. So. But uh, the reason I, I included this one is because it really points out that you are not, you as a company, are not the only one who has the opportunity to lose your data. And and so in this particular case, safety first got popped, but Lowe's is in the headline. Yeah, the only detail we really got is that they did a backup, which is a good thing, but they backed it up to an unsecured server which is a bad thing. Right. And that unsecured server got popped. Right. And yeah, but yeah, absolutely. You, you have to keep in mind if you're doing an inventory of where your data is and how it's being used, those third parties and those third party connections, we're seeing more and more of this. 
Yeah, and you, you, you as a company cannot absolve yourself of responsibility when you hand something off to a third party. If it's your data, it's your data, and if it gets compromised while it's in the custody of some other other party, your name is going to be in the headline, and we, we that kind of says that. I think the historic view of vendor management programs is probably insufficient for cases where they're connecting to your network or they're processing your private data. What I also find interesting about these third-party connections is any sort of DLP platform or you know data controls are out the window once you <laughs> right. goes off you know off your site. Right. You cannot you know, in essence, they're not going to utilize your DLP or data rights or whatever it may be, exactly. uh, digital rights system on their system. So you may have it greatly controlled within your own organization and feel pretty confident about that, but you've got to keep in mind what happens when it uh, right. leaves that organization. Right. So vendor management, that is one of the new frontiers, I think. All right. The next story we have comes from... M-Y-C-E, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I thought this was worth talking about for a couple of reasons. The headline is, only 51% of AV scanners detect zero days, zero day malware, uh, which which I'm sure comes as a complete surprise to everybody. I'm surprised it's that high, actually. Well, so here's the problem, right? And I want to find the exact quote in here because it, you know, this is one of those duct tape moments, right? So, so a virus total, let's see, the website is mainly intended to be a second opinion and is, and is according to the developers, not usable for testing and rating antivirus software. So let, let's back up just a moment. This entire study was based off Virus total. Correct. And virus right. total says don't use our site to evaluate the effectiveness of antivirus engines. And so despite all of that, uh, this group went and did a study about the effectiveness of antivirus engines using virus total and in fact said in this article that, uh, they were, though, though they were warned, they went ahead and did it anyway. Awesome. Uh, and well, what can you say? Uh, but you know, be that as it may, uh, you know, you can you can still put it in your pipe and smoke it. They say uh, on on the first day, a piece of malware is fifty one percent likely to be caught by uh, by at least one of, or I guess fifty one percent of the uh, the engines they have. And they also said that if not one of the scanners detects a piece of malware on the first day. It takes an average of two days before the malware was detected by at least one scanner. So there are so many questions that come to mind about the validity of this. First off, where are they getting these zero days? And why are they truly zero day? Right? Are they, you know, the exact comes into play of what sort of ecosystems around the zero day that's getting it out there that is... You know, deploying it. Keeping a virus tool is not based on, you know, deploying this technology in an enterprise environment. It is purely, uh, well, not purely. To my understanding, let me hedge this a little bit because I'm not a virus tool expert. You're really just checking against their dat files of the 47 different AV engines they've got out there. 
in a not perfectly replicated environment to your enterprise. So there are so many things out there that I just kind of turn my head sideways at the study a little bit. But the timelines of detection I do think are interesting and relevant. Yeah, that was why I would, that's why I wanted to bring them up. But you know, yeah. to your to your point, I I had the same thought about where are their samples coming from because obviously uh you know, either they had either they had like 5 of them that they collected or they had a whole bunch and if they had a whole bunch, they were probably generating generating them themselves, which is interesting unto itself. Well, in that case, okay, so let's talk that down for a moment. They generate malware themselves and then slowly over time people start to detect their malware is that because they only submitted it to virus total or is it also released in the wild to simulate an actual <laughs> propagation of malware I, there's lots of nuance here <laughs> i know well i th- i think one of the uh, one of the interesting things is that virus total will as i understand it will under certain circumstances will pass samples on to the to the different malware providers or ma- antivirus providers sure and uh, and so i i, I mean I, again there it's not the methodology isn't covered in here but i'm assuming that they're uploading it and then coming back the next day and seeing if it's detected yet which is an interesting approach so a- anyway uh, the I think the point still holds that antivirus is not a perfect solution. It it is not ever going to be a perfect solution. It's probably only becoming more ineffective as time goes on, and and the capability of repackaging malware becomes more and more common and more and more convenient and and accessible to uh, more novice players. So it's not not a good story. It's getting worse. I you know I I think. To me, this particular article pointed out some problems in the way people approach studies and, and garner headlines. So that was why I wanted to bring up. Fair enough. Moving on, we have IT Pro Portal, NTT, the Nippon Tele- Telegraph and Telephone, or Telephone and Telegraph released their Global Threat Intelligence Report for 2014. and It must be report season. Everybody's releasing their reports. It is report season, yes. I, I, I'm, I'm going to write a report about the flood of new reports. And, Absolutely. You know, the reports are at epidemic levels. Well, you know, I got, I got to thinking in the financial markets and uh, investors, I mean, there's, there's certain services who will track different uh, different analysts of companies and what they'll do is they'll categorize the uh, the assessments of these different analysts and I'm wondering sure. if anybody is doing meta studies based on all of these reports that are coming out and you know are, are there ways that we can normalize the data that are coming out of all these studies and is there any benefit to that and I'm not exactly sure that there is. You know, in this particular case, NTT says they analyzed trillions of log lines. 
from over 1,300 security experts and researchers. Uh, so, yeah, it's a it, you know obviously a big data set, but uh, how how relevant is it? it uh, you know, it's it's uh, my view is it's it's definitely not as well refined a report is like the DBIR, but you know I, I'm not exactly sure how long they've been publishing this report. Maybe it'll become more more so over time. Uh, but they did say that um, some interesting observations that kind of align with my view of the world. So you know I'm predisposed to liking it because of that. Malware incidents are largely due to missing controls and. And they say that half of vulnerabilities they observed were patched more than two years ago. And, and kind of underscores the things that we've been talking about. Back to the Trustwave report, you know, with the 71% uh, relating to Java vulnerabilities. And when you look at the previous Secunia report, which showed that uh, in a lot, of, I don't remember the percentages, but some big number of people are using Java 6 still, which has not been in support for, you know, eight months or, or whatever. So it's, it's a, it's a pretty dire picture that, uh, that we have. But what is not clear to me in, in any shape or form is what proportion of these problems are related to individuals versus corporations. And does that vary based on the size of company? For instance, are larger enterprises more likely or less likely to be running out-of-date versions of Java? I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. That would be really interesting uh, to see because, you know, on, on the surface it seems like a just a, a horrific scene where we've got all these all these systems running Java, which are apt to getting compromised when they go to, you know, they go to some website that happen to be uh, silently compromised. So anyway, it's a it's a pretty long report. It's an interesting read. I've at it. Next story we've got comes from Tech World. The title is Public Utility Compromised After Brute Force Attack, DHS says. This is uh you know, the end times are upon us. The the zombie apocalypse is here. Some unidentified server at an unidentified utility in an unidentified space, uh, you know, power, water, that kind of thing, uh, was compromised in some unidentified way using a brute force attack. However, so far, this is chock full of information. It's, it, well, I mean, it's riveting. It is riveting. And I want to read you, I want to read you something. It's just, it, it it it's just so powerful right okay so they're talking about this 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 internet facing host that was compromised with a weak password and which is which is huge news right it was determined that the systems were likely exposed to numerous security threats and previous intrusion activity was also identified the proceedings section of the show is brought to you by Captain Obvious. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, the, basically what they're saying is this system's been uh, apparently repeatedly compromised for quite some time, and we are just now running around with our hair on fire because a 
a system which serves some unknown purpose at some unknown company doing some unknown line of business was compromised. And, you know, Lord, I hope that they're not, uh, you know, that they're not having their, their, uh, you know, Joomla server also controlling their, <laughs> you know, the, the, the valves to their reactor, which I guess that might happen. I don't know. Well, first off, it was a brute force. That, is one of the oldest school type of attacks we know about. There's about 700,654 million different ways to detect brute force attacks. Right. Are you not logging? Are you not monitoring these logs? Are you not alerting automatically for somebody trying to, you know, log in over and over again with bad credentials? Yeah. I, I hate to get so basic about this, but if they're not even getting that right, I'm afraid of what else they don't have right. It, it made me cry because, uh, you know, I, exactly what you said, right? Not only have they not detected all that activity, they apparently didn't detect that it had been previously compromised. Mm. Well, you know, it's funny that, you know, that that's very part of this is talking about how it's really easy to find these control systems by Google, which uh, for a while, by the way, Google hacking was a kind of a hot topic where people crafted really smart Google searches to uncover all sorts of interesting information. And there were books out on it. It was, you know, it was kind of cool for a while. It's kind of faded to the background. But if you, if you, you should go back and look. If you don't know about it, there's a lot of really cool research about how you can find all sorts of things by really interestingly crafting your Google searches. But all that being said, you know, the, this particular search is warning uh, that folks can find these controllers uh, even though they were not intended to be internet-facing. Well, there's a key problem, right? Somebody made an assumption somewhere. Yeah. And yep. didn't understand or chose to ignore what they were connecting to what and what path of the data was flowing and what their threat landscape was and, and what their threat surface was. And that goes back again to the basics. That's you right. You have to know what's connected to what and what paths... Uh, you know, people can get through. And by by the way, kids, if you don't know what Shodan is, go play with it. Spend you know, spend about ten bucks with them, and you're gonna have a whole lot of fun with your own company searching uh, searching your public IP space to find out what what you got hanging out there. It's really quite enlightening. Um, there there is a second part of this story where they're talking about yet another. Un, unnamed entity uh, in an unnamed line of business who was also compromised. And in this particular case, it was a controller that was intended to operate a mechanical device. And this controller was attached to a cellular modem, which, you know, I would, I would say is, you know, like a, you know, a 3G or a 4G hotspot type thing. And apparently, just kind of hanging wide open on the internet, and they also said uh, it had no, uh, I'm trying to find the exact words, but it had, uh, the, the device was directly internet accessible and was not protected by a firewall or authentication access controls. And And they go on to say, but it was okay, because when the attack happened, the system was actually offline for maintenance. And and the thing that struck me was, 
Okay, but for all of the the rest of the time, it was online, and it had no firewall and no authentication. You know what the heck was going on? You know, I'm, do they know that it wasn't being toyed with? Uh, just epic fail all around. And this is where this is where compliance actually probably helps when you have the basics. This wrong. Yes, compliance, I agree. Yeah, at least compliance brings you some basic level of cluefulness. I, I agree. I hate I agree. To say it, but... Do you have? <laughs> are there any three G modems at your? Oh. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I mean, there, there's it, it does have some some benefit. And by the way, I you know I'll say one thing for compliance is when you have a very 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 large environment, which I'm assuming some of these probably are, compliance becomes a, almost a necessity because uh, there's really no other there's really no other way you can't you can't have an independent assessment on everything. You've got to have you've got to have some kind of standard yardstick and that essentially equates to compliance. So yeah, I, I agree with you on that. So anyhow, uh, I think the thing I would take away from this one is, you know, number one, oh boy, I don't even know. It's such an epic fail. I, I can't even go there. I'm just, let's just move on. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, get the basics right. Jeez. It's, you know, we could spend a whole show dissecting that one. Jeez. Okay, the next and last story we have comes from Bloomberg. And it is a it is kind of a whopper. So most people probably are aware that last week the US Department of Justice issued an indictment for a number of Chinese hackers that were apparently part of the infamous APT one uh, unit 61398, on and on and on, uh, in relation to stealing lots of data. And we, I think we actually talked about it and how a couple of companies were specifically named as being targeted. The, the characterization in the indictment was you know, that the, the theft was significant and lots of significant amounts of data were being stolen. And companies like Alcoa and Allegheny Technologies were specifically named. Well, it's it's interesting that here in the U.S., the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, happens to, you know, rule the roost as it comes to publicly traded companies. And when you are a publicly traded company, as you might expect, if something happens to your business that might in the future impact your ability to earn money, you have an obligation to report that to your shareholders. And... It is interesting, this particular report, or this article here, is pointing out that on the one hand, we have these companies saying, yep, you know, yeah, we did get, we did get popped by these Chinese people, but it wasn't material. You know, we didn't, we didn't think it rose to the level of something that we needed to go and tell you our dear shareholders about. And at the same time, we have the Department of Justice, on the other hand, saying, oh my gosh, what a tremendous hack. This is such a devastating amount of information they stole. We, you know, we, we, we need to take drastic action and, you know, issue an indictment and, 
and uh, on and on and on. And so there's this dichotomy, you know, what what on earth is actually going on is, you know, is the DOJ overplaying the importance of what was happening or what was happening? Or is this another case where a company was in fact compromised and uh, as companies are wont to do, decided to sweep it under the rug and, and not go public? And by the way, I see that happen quite a lot. That is not a surprising thing. There are not a lot of companies that run out to the media and say, hey, guess what? We lost our intellectual property to, to hackers. You know, that's often an internal matter. Unless, uh, you know, obviously, unless they can reach out and, and grab who did it. And, you know, a lot of times you can't. So there's, I think from their perspective, there's not a lot of benefit to coming forward. It's only downside. That's true. Although there are laws that dictate what they do have to come forward with. So there, there's downside if they don't. Well, I think I think they're about to find out what the downside yeah. is. <laughs> and it's a rough it's a rough call, right? Uh, you know what what are you going to report? You know there there is a gray area here of what is need to be reported and what isn't. Um, right, and that, you know that that actually comes down to the definition, as interesting as it is, to what the word material means. You know, the requirement by the FEC, sorry, the SEC is that you report any material impacts or, or potential impacts to your business, to your shareholders. And, you know, you, you kind of have a, um, you know, an, an undefined or at least loosely defined term that, that can be interpreted differently by different people. Yeah. And I, I think that's how you end up in this, this kind of position. So... You know, I mean, I think the concern I've got is that if the DOJ's characterization of this is true, it certainly seems like it would be really difficult to say that you couldn't consider it material. I mean, I, I would have a hard time. Well, I think what we're going to need to have is a lot more case law on what is yeah. material and what isn't in this area uh, to, for it to get clarity. You know, and I'm not, I'm not taking away the benefit of the doubt from these companies of, you know, right now, as far as I know, there's not very clear guidance on this. Well, and, and on, uh, to, on the side against the DOJ, you know, I, I haven't, I didn't have a chance to go back and look at the, you know, the, the previous track record of these companies. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're, as far as I can tell, their revenue didn't materially suffer. And so if, you know, if in fact their revenue didn't suffer, maybe it actually wasn't. How do you, how do you prove that though? Could they have made more money? You know, could, would they have made an extra 10% in sales if X wasn't stolen by a competitor? Uh, yeah, hard to say. You know, how do you prove that? Yeah, it's very, very difficult. I mean, it's the same thing with Target. You know, we didn't talk about the, the target story, but that you know the uh, investor solution, I don't remember that the ISS, whatever that stands for, is calling for the board of Target to resign as a result right. of of the breach. And you know, and it's the same thing; it's a similar kind of thing. You know, Target. Lots of people run around saying, "Oh my gosh, the CIO of, of Target was forced out, and the CEO was forced out." But you know, was the CEO forced out because of the breach, or was he fo- forced out because of the failed Canada thing? Uh, and, and, you know, they, they had a, a somewhat lackluster fourth quarter. 
Well, was it lackluster because of the breach or was it lackluster because of, you know, other factors? And and that's exactly your point. We don't know. You can't you can't run it both ways. You know, we 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 don't get to live in both worlds at the same time and then compare one against the other and and so uh you know, we, we we don't really know for sure and that's uh, that's kind of a hindrance to us uh although you know my my thinking is and I actually had a, a debate with this on a mail, uh, some people on a mailing list about this that I don't think companies suffer all that much public companies suffer all that much from a stock price perspective in the wake of a breach and it's particularly anymore because most stock is held by by institutional investors. That's true. The target did take a pretty big hit initially. Um, you know, it's recovered fairly nicely. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think, you know, I think that the, the issue is that those institutional investors don't have baked into their models. Well, you know, got, they got breached recently. They've got, you know, alpha and beta and, you know, they've got a lot of well-established financial metrics that don't, instantly change in the aftermath of a breach. And so, you know, you don't, I I think you don't often see a big change because the people in my mind, the people who would, who would react negatively and, you know, kind of like the, the the whole Aaron Arnheimer, uh, his, his proposed hedge fund against companies that are breached, you know, he he wants to, uh, to start shorting the stocks, you know, you can't move the needle unless you're one of those big, those big players. So, you know, and, and the, the downside, the reason I bring that up is as security people, we, we really like the idea that we can point to companies being punished in the stock market in the wake of a breach. And we can point to it and say, look, if we, you know, if we don't make this sensible investment, you know, this is going to happen to us. And the problem is that we're having a harder and harder time to, uh, pointing to actual examples where that's really happening. That's that's my point. Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great point. So, and you know, it, it goes back to to something we were talking about. I think last show of certain executives going, I don't know if this infosec spend is worth it. Prove yes, it. exactly. What's <laughs> the? Is, there's no ROI here, right? Which is frightening, but. Anywho, yep, and that's uh that's the show for for this evening. And uh, as as usual, we definitely appreciate everyone's time and attention. Glad you're here listening. If you like the show, you know, tell a friend, give us some uh, give us some ratings on on iTunes or wherever you find us. And uh, you can find the show and the show notes and back episodes and links to all the stories we talk about on the website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we're going to call it a show for another week. All right. Great. Have a good week, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.